This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 12 of Inside COVID-19. Coming up, some much-needed hope for South Africa's COVID-19 fight. Research from a top United States university suggests the BCG vaccination against TB, administered in this country for the past 80 years, provides protection against COVID-19. More on that coming up, including an interview with Dr. Gonzalo Otazu, head of the New York Institute of Technology research team. Also in this episode, a U.S.-based South African is spearheading a drive to get a skin prick COVID-19 testing kit into the market. We get a peek into how South African medics are preparing for the next wave of patients. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. First, though, in the COVID-19 headlines today, research published by Assistant Professor Dr. Gonzalo Atazu, a technologist colleague and four students at the New York Institute of Technology, provides fresh hope for countries like South Africa, which have long-standing universal policies for vaccinating against TB. A century-old vaccine, BCG, which has been administered in South Africa since 1940, appears to offer an unexpected shield against COVID-19. The NYIT report, which compares the COVID-19 mortality rates in 55 countries, found that the five which have never given their children BCG vaccinations, Italy, the United States, Lebanon, Netherlands and Belgium, are experiencing COVID-19 death rates of up to 100 times higher than those countries which have long-standing universal BCG vaccinations. This thesis is further supported by evidence that countries like Spain, France and Switzerland, which discontinued universal BCG vaccinations because of low TB incidence, are reporting much higher COVID-19 deaths than where vaccinations have been continuous. Other countries which began BCG vaccinations late, such as Iran, are also reporting far higher mortality rates. Lots more on that potential breakthrough coming up including that interview with Dr. Otazu. Deaths from COVID-19 continue to rise sharply and were up by a third to 66,500 over the weekend. Italy, at 15,362 deaths, remains the hardest hit, followed by Spain, the USA, France, the UK, Iran, the Netherlands, Germany, Belgium and Switzerland. Note the bulk of which were non- or sporadic BCG vaccinators. In Europe, there is hope that the pandemic may have peaked. In Spain, the number of daily deaths fell for the third day in a row to 674, while French daily deaths also declined and Germany reported its third straight drop in the daily rate of new infections. In the US, however, the curve is still on an upward trajectory with New York reporting its highest number of deaths in a single day. By Sunday night, Johns Hopkins University's COVID-19 map showed total confirmed infections worldwide was over one and a quarter million, up by 25% since Friday night. Around a quarter of these are in the United States, with Spain, Italy, Germany and France now all above China, where COVID-19 originated but has been tightly controlled. 
South Africa's confirmed infections continue to grow modestly, totaling 1,585 by Saturday night, up by 80 or 5% from Friday. This translates into a 3% infection rate from 54,000 tests that have been conducted. By Saturday night, South Africa had recorded nine COVID-19 deaths, the last six all from KwaZulu-Natal, four females and two males, aged between 46 and 81. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. The New York Institute of Technology research, which shows a high negative correlation between BCG vaccinations and COVID-19 mortality and infection rates, is welcome news for South Africa, where the vaccine has been in use since 1940 and routinely administered to babies since 1960. The vaccine marks are clearly identified in older citizens, as it used to be administered through a 20-puncture head heath gun. BCG was introduced in 1921 as a vaccine against tuberculosis after 13 years of research by French bacteriologists Albert Calmet and Camille Guérin, the C and G in its name. South Africa is one of 157 countries worldwide that it universally administers the vaccine. In the interviews that follow, we hear from Dr. Gonzalo Otazu of the NYIT and, with the local angle, Discovery's chief clinician, Dr. Nolutandu Nemetsuwarani, and Dr. Neil Martinson, head of the perinatal research unit at PHRU and an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University Center for TB Research. Well, it's a warm welcome to Dr. Gonzalo Otazu, who's with the New York Institute of Technology. Dr. Otazu, you and, uh, and some of your students and a colleague have put together a research report that is giving hope to many people around the world, focusing on the TB vaccine, BCG. What put you into this frame of mind to, to have a look at it in the first place? So I... Uh I was surprised, as there were many other people, about the differences on how the uh, disease was spreading. And there were uh, very uh, different, very strong differences between different countries. In particular, my attention was caught by Japan, that had some of the first cases, but however, the disease has not spread as widely compared to other countries, another developed country like Italy that have been uh, very uh, strongly affected. And there are many differences between these countries, but uh, I, I knew that the BCG vaccination had this uh, property that has been uh, described before, that it provides this broad immunity. So when I look at the policies of, the, of universal vaccination, then it immediately jumped out that the countries that were being hit especially hard by the COVID-19 turn out to be the countries that uh, never implemented a BCG vaccination policy. So that was what started the study. So we compiled a, lo- a, a list as comprehensive as possible given the circumstances of more than 100 countries and compared the BCG policies with the number of deaths per million people. And, and then we, we saw these relationships. Uh, however, let me point out and emphasize that our study is a correlational study. We find this correlation. 
it's possible that there might be some other explanation. It could be, for example, that the countries that have a BCG vaccination policy, which tend to be in the developing uh, world, uh, might have younger population. We are doing now some uh, analysis of that data to control for that. But those are the ones that we know. There might be other factors that might be influencing it. That's why it's very important that we wait for the, the results of the ongoing clinical trials where in a controlled population with randomized, some of, uh, randomized where some of the uh, uh, individuals will get a, a placebo, some of them will get the BCG, we'll be able to know if indeed there is a causal relationship. Now, in South Africa, we have had a vaccine, a BCG vaccinations uh, going back to 1940. Clearly, mm-hmm. uh, with, in this country, there is concern, given the, the high HIV-AIDS um, uh, rate, that that's, uh, any, any little bit of help or any little bit of hope that could come through um, is uh, very warmly greeted here. Is there a... Is is there a, a, a maybe a problem though that you might have had the BCG if your research turns out to be accurate, but HIV/AIDS is going to be more of a threat? That's that's a really good point. Uh, in fact, the Center for Disease Control uh, advises against the use of the uh, BCG vaccination in immunocompromised populations, which. So that could be a factor that has to be taken into account. But let me point out something also that is actually very important. So although there are countries in East Asia that have managed to control the the disease or have managed to reduce the number of cases, those countries did have BCG vaccination policies, but all of those countries have implemented uh, social distancing policies, quarantines, widespread testing. I'm not aware of any country that just by having a BCG vaccinated policy has been able to control the disease. So all these measurements might complement the, the, the BCG vaccination policy. But again, we have to wait to see the results of clinical trials to determine if there is a causal relationship. In the research report that you put together, you made a very interesting distinction between Italy and Japan. Could you take us through that? Actually, I mean, we are doing a more analysis. I would like to point out some comparison about Italy and India. So one possible explanation that has been uh, brought up is that maybe uh, the countries that have been more uh, strongly hit by the epidemic are the countries that have been uh, hit earlier. So, for example, uh, Italy... Uh, those countries might have been hit early and the spread of the disease is going to be the same independent of, of the country. However, if we look at the start of the first reported case, it's the same in India and in Italy, although the number of cases in Italy are much, are much higher per the size of the population than in, than in India. So, however, again, let me rephrase this. This is, this, this is a correlational study. We, we have to wait or the results of clinical trials to indeed know if this is a causal relationship. How much greater per million people has the infections and indeed the mortalities been in Italy than India? So in Italy, as of March 30, uh, there were 11,591 deaths for a population of 60 million. 
whereas in India, on the same day, on March 30, the number of deaths were 32 for a country of 1.38 billion people. So it's many times for the non-BCG vaccinated country. Yes, but there are many differences and there might be something else that I'm missing. So that about that is not, it's not the age distribution, but there are other things that might be there. So that's why a controlled clinical trial is crucial to find out if this correlation, is this uh, relationship is a causal relationship. What about the countries where the vaccination has been sporadic and again, in your report, you, you then compared Spain with uh, Denmark. Uh, I wouldn't say sporadic. It was that, uh, so what happened is historically, BCG uh, vaccination was, was used. But then in, in some countries, as the rate of the number of tuberculosis cases dropped, then there was a switch of policy because if, if the whole population has BCG vaccinated, then uh, the, the, this normal tuberculin test will deal a, a positive. So you will know if somebody actually has the infection or if, on the other hand, has been BCG vaccinated. So countries switch to not vaccinated, and then you have a very uh, sensitive test, which is the tuberculin test, find a few cases and treat those cases. So that's why uh, some countries discontinue their policy. So Spain, they had the policy for for a few years, and compared to other countries that kept the policy for longer times and cover more of their population. Also, the the countries that have only come to the party late with the BCG vaccinations, as in Iran in 1984, uh, you make the yes. point there that, that that's also supporting perhaps the conclusions that your initial report reached. That's that's correct. The case of Iran, it has a universal current universal vaccination policy, but as you point out, it just started in 1984. So when you have a look at it overall, from the evidence that seems to be available from what you've shown with the United States, the Netherlands, Belgium, countries that never vaccinate Italy, that, that never used BCG vaccinations, are the hardest hit by far. Is there any other reason potentially uh, why this might be the case? Perhaps did they not practice social distancing? Did they, did they, were they earlier affected? Those are um, good points. Uh, I mean, right now I'm in the middle of a quarantine here in New York. So, so social distancing has been uh, practiced in, in these countries. And there are like a developed countries, there are rich countries with a, like a advanced uh, medical technology available to people. So, however, the death rates are pretty high. But there might be other factors. That, that's why a randomized trial should take care of all those factors that I cannot even think of right now. And what kind of trials would they be? So first of all, let, let me be very clear. I'm not involved in any of the clinical trials. So as I found these correlations, as I, we are submitting our report, we found out that there were actually other researchers that have uh, started or were about to start clinical trials. So I'm not directly involved in this research, but uh, these uh, clinical trials are, as, as far as I understand, are, are, are using the uh, are using the healthcare personnel, which is now on the front lines, which are like being exposed to the virus, and to see if the BCG vaccination would provide some sort of protection.
Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. We're joined now by Dr. Nolitandu Nemetswarani, who's the head of the Discovery Health Center for Clinical Excellence. Nolu, it's, it's always good to talk with you, but particularly today after some perhaps very encouraging news uh, that the New York Institute of Technology College of Osteopathic Medicine has done some research which suggests that there's a very good reason why we have such different mortality rates in the U.S., Italy and Spain, which are way ahead of the rest of the world. Um, and it's got something to do with a vaccine called BCG or Bacillus Calmet-Gurin. Okay, now, now I'm really way outside my comfort zone here. What exactly is BCG? BCG, I mean, is an old vaccine that has been incorporated into our vaccination schedules, uh, specifically if you look at South Africa. This is a vaccine that we use uh, to, to protect uh, ourselves against uh, tuberculosis, which is um, an infection that is quite prevalent in our setting. So it's usually given at birth uh, to kids uh, born uh, to, yeah, to mothers in, in South Africa and other countries that also have these uh, vaccine policies in place where there is universal vaccination uh, against TB. When we grew up, it used to be almost like a stamp that uh, was administered on one's uh, shoulder or the deltoid, which is that muscle on the, sh- on the shoulder on the, or the upper arm. And I think most recently, I mean, if I look at my kids, it's mainly a subcutaneous uh, injection where you've got a little bump where that uh, forms uh, around your upper arm, the deltoid. So that is really used, really protects uh, from severe forms of TB. Do many South Africans have this? The policy in our country is that every child born in South Africa has to have the BCG vaccine uh, at birth. So if you look at the immunization schedule, extended uh, program on immunization, which we call it EPI, it includes um, BCG vaccination at birth. So most kids, by the time they leave the hospital, they would have been immunized uh, against TB. How long have we had this uh, policy in place? Sure, it's, it's many years. I mean, if I look at uh, introduction of BCG, something that I, when I was born, uh, BCG was already there. You know, we were getting vaccinated at schools and all that. But uh, most importantly is that um, you know, right now, at birth, all kids have to have the BCG vaccine um, before they can they can leave the hospital. All right. So we are one of the countries where most of the population, one hopes, got BCGs. The yes. research that now comes from the New York Institute of Technology that we referred to right in the beginning is very, very interesting in this regard. I guess there's lots of research all over the world. I did send you a copy of this report. Is it something that we can <laughs> take seriously? Any um, promising, uh, whether it's a protective mechanism uh, that relates to BCG or any other form of treatment that could be promising in, in, you know, in fighting this uh, you know, epidemic, it's something that um, we will have to be interested in and also make sure that it is something that is well-researched before we can make any conclusions. I think at this stage, there's still a lot that needs to be done in terms of research before we can certainly say that this is something that is going to be useful. I think from a South African point of view, considering that there is this universal policy around immunizing against TB, it would be a good uh, outcome if there is really this protection. 
um, that uh, comes with uh, with this particular vaccine. Considering also that obviously with our high prevalence of HIV, we are also worried about that. So if there is any hope of some level of protection with BCG, that would be great. So just to to summarise, and maybe you can fill in the gaps here, according to the research that has come out, the countries which have BCG immunisation, and as you've explained, South Africa is one of them, have had far, far lower mortality rates than the countries which don't have this policy. And in particular, Spain, Italy and the United States do not have a policy of BCG vaccinations in children. It does seem to correlate really well. And when, when you look at that from a, an external perspective, it does look like these numbers that uh, the Institute's researchers have put together do make sense for people outside. Does it make sense to you as a doctor and a scientist? Yes. Um, so, Alec, I think what's quite interesting is that um, the analysis where it actually showed that the, the, the countries that don't have the universal uh, TB vaccine program seem to have uh, worse outcomes in terms of, you know, the infection rates and also the number of infections that are seen in those countries. When you compare uh, with countries like Japan and all the other uh, Asian countries where there is some form of enforcement of this universal TB uh, vaccine vaccination programs. So right now, it's still too soon to say that's the only reason why we're seeing what we're seeing. It does look quite compelling when you look at it, but there could be other factors that only research will have to give us these answers because there are other practices in those countries maybe that are slightly different. There may be different responses uh, to, to the epidemic that may have resulted in, in the picture that we see. But there is now this uh, BCG uh, discussion in the mix that needs to be thoroughly investigated before we can for sure say this is the reason why we're seeing the differences. Very interesting, but uh, I think it's still early days for us to make uh, you know, definitive conclusions around what we are finding in the data. The, the whole thesis here is that this vaccination against TB has given the, the body immunization or a certain degree of immunization against COVID-19. What exactly is, a, is the purpose of a vaccination? So we give um, a vaccine, which is usually a, a weakened strain of either a, a bacteria or a virus. So we talk about live attenuated in some instances. So we're giving a person a form of the infection to stimulate the, the immune system so that when you actually get to, to be faced with a real infection, your body has already developed uh, antibodies so that it can be able to fight. And usually those antibodies are quite specific to whatever the, the infection you're trying to immunize against. So the BCG will be obviously immunizing against tuberculosis. So the immune response that you are mounting is really to protect you against TB. But there are some immunotherapeutic uh, benefits that have been seen with BCG that extend beyond just TB, where there is some form of uh, an immune response that is mounted that is protective on, for other respiratory infections broader than just TB. And it does appear that it is protective, therefore, against uh, some of these uh, uh, viral uh, infections that cause respiratory symptoms. So I think that is the whole argument around BCG that it has not just conferred immunity against the, it was intended to, to confer immunity against, but it has extended benefits that uh, are being now researched to say maybe um, this 
could therefore be useful against uh, COVID-19 as it is, is as it also causes you know a respiratory type of uh, infection. Isn't it amazing though? It's it's something that was never intended at the time. It was intended to fight TB, and here out of left field comes the comes something that actually might by accident, be protecting us against this very serious disease. Definitely, definitely, which is why I think this is going to be a very important piece of research. And I think um, it's going to be um, of great interest to our local uh, researchers. Um, and it's going to be quite a, an, an interesting uh, piece of research, even to the countries where they do not have currently this universal TB um, vaccination program, where they may now start uh, thinking about I mean, in the absence of a COVID-19, um, of a SARS-CoV-2 um, vaccine, they may now start thinking about maybe um, using BCG to actually facilitate or fast-track that development of immunity in, in those communities as well. So it's, it's one that we are also really going to be watching very closely. And we are hoping really for positive results in this one because it has got a bearing in terms of uh, outcomes in the South African context. Inside COVID-19 from Business. It's a warm welcome to Neil Martinson, who is very close to the subject that we've been picking up on, the BCG or the Bacillus Calmet Guerin vaccine. Did I pronounce it correctly, Neil? Uh, it's probably okay. I mean, people will know what you're talking about. Mm, well, people in your industry, well, just uh, take us through what, it ex- what exactly it is that, uh, that you guys focus on. So uh, my focus is on doing TB research. And uh, probably, as you know, TB is the, at the moment, uh, the biggest killer of uh, people in South Africa, and primarily because it's linked to HIV. And the BCG that you've alluded to is a vaccine against TB, that uh, everyone in South Africa probably has had. And uh, a lot of us older people have probably had two two jabs uh, of BCG when we were younger. But uh, now currently it's given to all children at the time of birth, except for kids who have uh, who infected with HIV, who don't get the BCG. And the PHRU, uh, of which you're the Deputy Executive Director, is where exactly are you based? So we're based in Soweto at the Chris Hani Baragwanath Hospital, and we have uh, another uh, satellite site in, at the Chapong Hospital in Clarksdorp and some other smaller sites in, uh, in the Free State and in Limpopo province. So that you're on, on site, as it were, with, uh, with the research that you do and, and presumably clinicians as well? Yes, we do. Our job or our work at the PHRU is clinical research directed at mitigating the impact of HIV and tuberculosis in, in Southern Africa. Tell us about this BCG uh, vaccine, because there is very promising information coming from the New York Institute of Technology's College of Osteopathic Medicine to say that those who've been vaccinated as babies with it, which, as you've just explained, South Africans have been, might have a better defense system against COVID-19. Yes, yeah, so I think there has been some interest in BCG. So the, the problem with BCG is that it's a, not a very good vaccine in terms of preventing tuberculosis. So uh, as although we have, um, we have universal vaccination in South Africa for many, many decades, still tuberculosis is an incredible public health problem. So this vaccine clearly is not making a major impact on the TB epidemic, particularly as it's been exacerbated by HIV. 
However, several uh, clinical trials of BCG have shown an unexpected, what they call nonspecific benefit on mortality in infants. This was the one signal that people are trying to hang this COVID thing on, is that kids who received the BCG had a lower infectious disease mortality than kids who didn't receive the BCG. And uh, even though the protective effects against TB weren't that, that marked, there was this sort of side effect, as it were, of uh, BCG. So I guess that this is what spurred this paper that, I, that you're alluding to, which uh, looked at uh, rates of BCG and tried to relate the rates of BCG in each country to uh, deaths due to COVID and also to the overall population rates of COVID. And essentially what they're finding is that, that the, <laughs> the countries with lower uh, coverage of uh, BCG have higher COVID rates and higher mortality rates than those countries with, uh, with higher uh, rates of uh, BCG. That's really what, uh, uh, what the results of that study. From outside, just looking at the numbers, it's an irresistible argument to say that United States, Spain and Italy, who haven't had BCG vaccinations, have got this very high mortality rate, whereas other countries, not so. Are we, are we clutching at some straws here? I, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I would be as strong to say we are clutching at straws, but, but what I would, uh, would caution people is to, is to take this, what uh, epidemiologists call ecological evidence. So this is taking, taking population level figures, drawing up some correlation between uh, population level figures and then drawing a conclusion that may, that may be flawed because there might be other things at play. And the, the clear thing that, that comes out uh, that could be at play here is that the stage of the epidemic. So if they had to repeat the same uh, study in four months' time, they may find very different figures. South Africa clearly is at the beginning of its COVID epidemic. We could still uh, reach for the stars like Italy, uh, Spain and America have in term, uh, if you look at the graph. So I think that might be too early. The second thing is that the coverage of, of testing as you probably have seen and heard uh, experts on TV talking about, the more you test, the lower your death rate. If you just test people who, who get admitted to hospital uh, with symptoms of COVID, you're going to have a very high death rate. If you test a large number of people who may or may not have symptoms, the death rate, even though it might be exactly the same overall death rate, the death rate will be spuriously, uh, will, will be reflected as much lower than a country that it only tests people who are, have symptoms that are walking into hospital. I think for those two primary reasons, I would be a bit cautious about uh, jumping to an immediate conclusion and saying, wow, this is something that we must start uh, vaccinating people for. But uh, there are two trials that I'm aware of that are uh, either being planned or they've started. And uh, one of them is, is being planned in Stellenbosch and another one in the Netherlands. But it's very difficult to be able to say from that sort of ecological data that we should be doing something more with BCG than we are already. And it might be that if there is a protection, that uh, a second vaccination may add protection. But it might also be that if you gave a second vaccination at the time uh, shortly after which you would be exposed to uh, COVID, it might not have an effect or maybe it might even exacerbate your chance of being infected with COVID. So the vaccine world has been fraught with some uh, interesting surprises uh, that have been somewhat counterintuitive. So I think that uh, doing well-conducted clinical trials is, is appropriate. Neil, why is it that South Africa has had this experience 
of 20%, 20%, even 30% growth initially, and then flatlined. In the last few days, very low single-figure uh, increases in the infections. Is this a consequence, as well as what you spoke about a moment ago, of just not that many people being tested? Well, I think that the rate of positives to those tested is uh, extremely good. So I think that we have tested, uh, when last I looked, we, we had tested approximately 40,000 people to generate uh, 1,300 cases or, or thereabout. So I think that the, the testing has been uh, appropriate for the scale of the epidemic. There has been a recent announcement that the uh, testing is going to massively increase. And certainly there are testing sites where people can walk in uh, and be tested. But still, the requirement for testing has been lowered as the epidemic progresses. But I think that South Africa, to flatten this curve, uh, which we're all trying to do or blunt the curve, really um, it appears that if the initial announcement by the president and the stopping of flights from Europe, possibly both of those have contributed to the reduction of community transmission. So although most of the initial cases were from Italy and, and other parts of Europe, the real killer, in inverted commas, for South Africa is when there's widespread community transmission. The ability of the health services to respond to widespread community transmission at the time when we had our first uh, five or ten cases was really limited. Both the, the lockdown which uh, the effects of which we're probably starting to see right now in reduced transmission, as well as the uh, reduction in uh, European tourists and travelers, together with the initial uh, restrictions on movement and restrictions on football games and restrictions on other uh, mass gatherings, I think are now starting to bear fruit. But what happens when we come out of lockdown? Presumably a second wave is possible. Yes, I think that it, you'll, you'll have noticed that in Italy, uh, Spain, and uh, now in the U.S., uh, these lockdowns have been extended. I suspect that unless there's, <laughs> unless there's a incredible reduction in the daily uh, increase of new cases, uh, our lockdown will either be extended or will be, be extended with slightly less restrictions on movement or, uh, or might be targeted for certain areas which are uh, identified as hotspots for transmission. I don't see that, that three weeks of uh, lockdown uh, will be sufficient to curb the epidemic to such an extent that we can uh, you know, leave our houses and go back to normality. There's been a lot of preparation by the medical practitioners around the country. Have we had enough time to get ready for it? I think that uh, we probably would never have enough time. But I think that the initial detection of cases and uh, sort of ra uh, racking up of the government's response uh, when uh, the president first announced the lockdown, I think uh, it really galvanized both the, uh, the public and the private sectors to start taking this very seriously. And certainly there has been a combined response from both public and private sectors to try and rally all the resources that they can to provide more PPE, uh, protective equipment for health uh, uh, personnel, and to get more testing sites and uh, to ensure that the economic impact of this terrible uh, epidemic is not felt too much by, by the country, although I suspect it's going to have a, a dramatic effect. Something which observers are concerned about is the high HIV AIDS incidence in South Africa and 
presumably that would make a lot of people, millions of people, immune uh, or their immunities would be deficient, which suggests that COVID-19 be a major threat for them. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is, is this threat being exaggerated or is it very real? No, I think it, uh, I think it is uh, real, but it is unknown. The vast majority of people who are HIV infected in South Africa now are taking antiretroviral therapy, which should provide some form of protection. The, the problem is in the countries where, where the epidemic has really uh, taken hold, uh, HIV prevalence is, is very low. The experience uh, with people who are co-infected with HIV and with COVID is limited. And South Africa really provides a unique opportunity to ascertain what the impact will be. And I'm sure that the uh, 7 million people in South Africa who are HIV infected uh, weighed heavily on the president and the minister of health's minds when they were making this decision to have a lockdown. Because the, the sort of intuition of, of most medical people is that HIV is likely to have a deleterious effect on the uh, progress, the progression of the disease if someone does become infected. Well, you're there at Baragwanath Hospital. I think, is it still the biggest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere? Uh, it's reputedly, yes. Mm. Have you seen increases in COVID-19 cases? There has been uh, uh, several cases. I'm not a clinician in the true sense of uh, seeing patients as they get admitted into Barra, but I have heard that uh, that they've had several uh, positive uh, patients. I, I'm, I don't think that uh, they've had anyone who's been admitted to ICU yet, uh, but I might be wrong. But they're not being overwhelmed, certainly not at the moment. No, and I think that that's what this uh, lockdown has given them, has given them the opportunity to start increasing the number of beds to try and uh, gather resources like ventilators and to ensure that there are uh, isolation wards that are separate from from the general uh, run-of-the-mill patient and to, to try and prepare properly for the impending flood of patients if this uh, lockdown doesn't work or if the lockdown uh, merely delays a, a subsequent massive increase in the number of uh, patients with infection. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. As scientists race to find a cure and a vaccine for COVID-19, there are laboratories concentrating on developing antibody finger prick tests to determine whether a person has had the coronavirus. This would confirm that those who possess antibodies would not be able to be infected or to make others sick. That would enable them to safely return to work, especially healthcare workers who are now in self-isolation. The UK government has secured 3.5 million finger prick antibody tests, which it says will be made available this week via Amazon and pharmacy chain Boots. In the US, Stanley Bergman, a South African-born chief executive of Henry Schein, and a Wits University graduate, is also working on a fast antibody test. He spoke to our partners at Bloomberg, Carol Mazar and Jason Kelly. Yes, so Henry Schein is the largest provider of products to what we call office-based healthcare practitioners. That's dentists and physicians outside of the acute care setting, in the private setting. And in that context, we have for years been focused on what's called point-of-care rapid tests. These are tests like the flu vaccine or even a pregnancy test that is conducted in the doctor's office. And so we started looking about six weeks ago 
around the world for what's called point-of-care rapid tests for the coronavirus. And give you a little thought, and that is that testing for the coronavirus is not like a pregnancy test. It's not yes or no. There are three kinds of tests that need to be used in unison to diagnose a particular patient. And the first is what's called a PCR test. This is a molecular test that is really good to diagnose a patient in the first few days, the first seven days or so. The second is what's called an antigen test, which is early diagnosis, somewhere to mid-stage diagnosis, somewhere between five and ten days. And the third is the antibody, which is a blood test, which is good to determine if you have had the virus or not. All of these have to really be administered by somebody in the physician's office, or it could even be a paramedic, but interpreted by a physician. I'm not a physician. I'm not a public health person. I'm giving you a summary of what has right. to happen, or what could happen, and uh, these need to be reviewed. Right. An understanding of the patient's symptoms, the history, and other uh, and other kinds of an, uh, tests that have been done. These antibody tests are available pretty soon, and we'll be able to help patients understand whether they've had the disease or not. Stanley, we think it's really important that people have an understanding of it because it could potentially help us get people back to work sooner. It's about the presence of finding out if if the presence of antibodies are there, and it means a person might be immune from getting the virus in the in the future. So that's that's key, though. We still don't know that about this virus. Is that correct? Yes, it doesn't mean you will never get it again. I think these tests have been a little bit misunderstood in the sense that they sound very simple. You need to go through and understand what I just said and then speak to your physician. But clearly, these antibody tests, the blood test, the serology test, pinprick, no equipment needed, available in 15 minutes, are very, very helpful in bringing America back to work and particularly testing the frontline healthcare providers and, for example, ENT and police people. But are they 100% accurate in that if they show there's a presence of antibodies, that there is no chance of a person getting the coronavirus again? Well, first of all, none of these tests are 100% accurate, nor is the PCR test, nor any of these. This is where in the early stage of diagnosing these, this disease, uh, this, uh, and so none of these tests are 100% foolproof. Having said that, these tests work to, working together can help physician make decisions of whether somebody can go back to work or not. These are not tests that are foolproof. Unfortunately, we don't have any that are foolproof yet. And so how quickly does this get out and in what sort of volume, Stanley? Well, we expect to have product production available. We have at the moment two, uh, one being a Korean supplier and the other one being BD from the United States. And we're back in Dickinson, and we expect to have these products available uh, in the next week or so, in hundreds of thousands, and then likely in millions. No, these uh, tests will be available to physicians and to uh, hospitals, and uh, they can be bought from Henry Schein to our normal medical channel. I think the demand is more for the PCR test, which has been around for a while and known, and gradually, I think the knowledge about antibody, serology, blood tests will become known and that the product will become more and more sought after. But at the moment, uh, of course, we have not shipped any yet, but we're taking orders and we will uh, deliver tests to primarily we will focus on hospitals, acute care and physician offices.
Stanley, as you know, the key thing with antibiotics is that they tell us how many people were infected. That is the number who have recovered or have produced antibodies, suggesting that they have fought off the virus. So I'm curious if you have any idea, any results that have come back so far that gives you an idea of what proportion of the population is turning up antibody positive. Yeah, unfortunately, these tests are, uh, are relatively new. Testing patterns are not well known, but the test has been used. Uh, one in Korea and one in China with pretty good results. But, of course, we have no studies yet of any scale in the United States. Studies are being conducted, and uh, the public, many of them are studying this particular test and how to use it, but we're dealing with technology that's brand new in the United States. We need to know whether this is seasonal, ultimately, whether we're going to be living with this for quite some time. So we need to know whether people are, are essentially, if not immune, at least have, have had it and are building up those antibodies, right? What we need these tests to help us is determine patterns. And we can use these tests to help us determine what's the pattern of, uh, of impact on society in general. And these will be very, very helpful we expect them to be very, very helpful to public health uh, officials uh, as they diagnose or determine where the trends are heading. South Africa is in full preparation for the wave of infections expected to hit the country in the weeks ahead. After a stream of deaths among health workers elsewhere in the world, the medical practitioners at Grotesgeer Hospital in Cape Town are taking no chances. Here giving us a rare insight into the inner workings of those on the front line, is Dr. Ross Hoffmeyer of the University of Cape Town. Ross, I, I've uh, had the privilege of having a look at some of the videos that you guys have put together. It's almost, it looks to me almost like soldiers preparing for a war. Obviously, you're not a soldier, you, you're, a, um, you're a doctor, but you guys are doing simulations on how to treat COVID-19 victims. When did you start doing this? So uh, I'm an anesthesiologist here at uh, Krudiske. I'm connected to the University of Cape Town. And uh, we've obviously been watching this uh, eventuality of the uh, you know, public health emergency that's now become a, a, a pandemic and a national disaster for us here in South Africa quite closely for quite a long time. In fact, uh, we've had an eye on it since uh, early in January. I've been slowly and steadily making preparations, which obviously now have been accelerating over the last few weeks. Uh, and one of those things that we recognize as uh, as anesthesiologists is that we're going to be very involved with treating these patients. And as a hospital as a whole, uh, there's been a lot of coming together from different disciplines and figuring out how we're going to manage uh, if we have a huge surge in patients, as our colleagues overseas have seen, uh, and how we can prepare well for that. In anesthesia, we recognize that our skill set is looking after critically ill patients and uh, patients who might be COVID positive who need to come for, for emergency surgical procedures. So we have, uh, as a hospital, downscaled all of our elective surgery. Uh, we've been trying to empty our wards, empty our ICUs. And then on anesthesia side, we've been prepping very hard for uh, treating these patients while keeping our staff safe. We recognize that probably our most scarce resource in South Africa in terms of the whole of medical practice is our healthcare workers, our doctors, our nurses, and all the allied uh, professionals who work with us, us in the hospitals. So keeping them safe, preventing them from getting infected, 
which would result in them being quarantined or uh, landing up in hospital or ICU themselves is a huge priority for us. In the UK, one in four of their doctors are now sitting at home in self-isolation after they've got COVID-19. So it, it's a very, very real issue. And we've seen quite a lot of doctors or, or health workers around the world who've, who've died as a consequence of this, most famously the, the discoverer of the disease in China. Yeah, this is a huge concern for us. Uh, and you know, there are a number of reasons for concern, uh, one of them being that healthcare workers working with critically ill patients are exposed uh, potentially to quite heavy viral loads, and there's a question as to whether that puts them at, at greater risk uh, than people in the public who are exposed to sick patients. Um, but also we've seen globally a phenomenon, if we look at uh, the Italians, for instance, about 8 or 9% of their overall infections occurred in healthcare workers. So that's about 1 in 10 people who get sick and land up in hospital are healthcare workers themselves. And that hits both sides of the system. That uh, takes away from the practitioners that can care for these patients at a time of, of national need. And that also adds to the burden that they need to be cared for. So we take this very seriously as health practitioners and we take protecting uh, ourselves and our colleagues very seriously so that we can be available to care for more patients. So that process, the, the set of videos that you put together, it starts off with what the healthcare worker needs to do to prepare themselves to come in contact with the, uh, with the COVID-19 victim. Yes, indeed. And I think we need to be very careful and stratify carefully uh, what precautions are necessary for people in different situations who might be coming into contact with uh, COVID patients. One of our big concerns and one of the problems that we've been seeing is people who are in the community who obviously are concerned about being infected going to quite drastic measures uh, to prevent cross-infection and actually using up supplies that are needed by the healthcare workers. So we know that people who are in the community who are just maybe even under the lockdown, going to the shops, coming to contact with other people, the things that are going to prevent infection there are uh, physical distancing, good quality hand washing, avoiding touching one's face, etc. With patients uh, coming into the hospital, we have got what we call our standard level of personal protection. And that is if we're working with patients who may be COVID positive or who are known COVID positive. And there we know that the majority of the spread is through contact and through droplets. So we're taking standard precautions such as asking the patients to wear face masks so that if they cough, uh, the droplets are arrested. Uh, we are practicing good hand hygiene. We're wearing normal uh, gloves. We're wearing aprons. Uh, all of our normal contact and droplet precautions. But there's a very specific group of procedures, which we call aerosol generating procedures, where when we do those, we can actually, for a brief period of time, generate airborne uh, COVID virus droplets. Uh, and those things include procedures such as intubation, which is putting in a breathing tube for someone coming for an operation or someone who is acutely ill and needs to go on a ventilator. And those procedures, we need to take very, very strict precautions in order to keep our staff safe. And so for those procedures, we're using the highest end of the respiratory protection. So those are the specialized N95 respirator masks, the, the disposable ones that you see us wearing, the, the head covers, the goggles, the, the full-length gowns, etc. So what we're trying to do is, is use the highest level of protection for very high-risk procedures like intubation and then use stratified protection for the, the other forms of contact that we may have. We're seeing that although there's relatively few deaths at the moment in South Africa, that they are starting to grow and indeed also hitting previously healthy people. So these droplets or the transmission of the droplets is a very significant part of the spreading of this disease. 
Yeah, so you know we must remember that this is a coronavirus. It's a lot like our other flu viruses that we see, and the predominant methods of spread are, are droplets, which are heavy particles which fall out of the air within a couple of meters, and then contact, and particularly coming into contact with contaminated surfaces. So you know the person who is not wearing a mask or uh, who who doesn't practice good cough hygiene, who might then uh, wipe their face, get some on their hands, open the a, a door using the door handle, and you come along open the door, touch your face, and so forth, uh, it's, it's passed on. If there's somebody coughing who is, uh, you know, at least a few meters away from you, actually your, your risk of droplets is quite low. But this is why we're suggesting people who are sick, uh, who are in the hospital, we're putting normal surgical face masks onto them. It's those very fine aerosol particles that are generated when we do high-risk procedures that require us to wear this, this additional protection like the N95 masks and so forth. And again, this is a, an issue of national concern to us that uh, these might be inappropriately getting into the public domain and people might be wearing them because they feel it confers um, better protection where actually that's taking them away from the healthcare uh, providers who, who really need them because they're doing the high-risk procedures. Well, I guess if you in a hospital, the chances are people who come in because they've got COVID-19 or COVID-19 symptoms, are going to come into contact with you first. But just to take it a little bit further, these training videos, how widely are you dispersing them and where did you get the information or are there models that you've been able to pick up from elsewhere? We've made these training videos here at uh, Hudeskia with the support of our Department of Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine, as well as the Hudeskia Hospital and the Western Cape Department of Health. The, the funding and the drive for this uh, has come through the South African Society of Anesthesiologists, which is our national body. Uh, and SASA has been at the forefront of trying to raise the level of awareness as well as create opportunities for education, as well as uh, getting very involved uh, right up to a ministerial level nationally with uh, sourcing more PPE, uh, that's the personal protective equipment, uh, with addressing the issues such as the availability of ventilators and working very closely with the Critical Care Society of South Africa on a lot of these problems. In terms of where we've sourced this information, uh, fortunately we're connected to expert colleagues around the world. We've uh, been in discussion for several months, learning from the lessons that have been learned by countries which have had uh, the pandemic strike them ahead of us. We've learned from uh, colleagues and information coming out of China. We've learned from our colleagues in, in Europe. Uh, the Italians have been very efficient in uh, sharing knowledge. So as clinicians, we've had a lot of online discussions. We've had webinars. Uh, there have been some early publications. Fortunately, we have networks of these colleagues. I've been able to pick up the uh, the phone and speak to my counterparts in the UK about their preparations. Uh, there's been a plethora of information, for instance, about the airway management that's featured in these videos. And a lot of uh, expert consensus has gone into this. So we've certainly been able to learn from people overseas. Uh, and then we've also utilized our own uh, local expertise and tried to come up with models that are available that can be used around the country. So, for instance, any practitioner in the country can go to the SASA webpage. We've got a sasacovid19.com is the is the resource and our national guidelines for personal protective equipment, for theatre work for, for COVID-19, for what to do with older colleagues, for how to gear up private practices to, to manage patients who are coming in with COVID in the private hospitals, to convert anesthesia teams to uh, assisting with critical care. All of that is available on that resource. It's all open access and it's shared online. And the training videos that you're talking about, they went live uh, yesterday. Uh, and they're available to be reviewed and uh, to be downloaded uh, and to be shared widely. And we're encouraging people to do that. The, you know, there's an aviation saying that uh, there's nothing more useless than the runway behind you. You, know, you just have to use what runway is left in front of you. And I think as South Africa faces 
the concern that we might be hit hard as our colleagues overseas have been, uh, that we all need to be making every effort that we can to prepare now. And what we've tried to do is create those resources to help people prepare. I guess the biggest concern or the greatest fear amongst normal citizens, ordinary citizens, is that once they get this thing, it's tickets. It doesn't, surely that's not the case. Surely there is stuff that, although there isn't a vaccine, but there is a help that medical professionals can give you. Absolutely. And I think people have been hailing the, the efforts of um, medical teams and medical practitioners at the moment as, you know, we are, we're on the front line. But actually, the most important message is we're not the front line. We are the, the last line of defense. The front line is out there in the community. The front line is the people who are getting frustrated because they've been stuck at home for a week. The front line is people who need to remember to wash their hands when they do their, their once-a-week grocery run. Uh, the front line is Joe Public, is the citizens of South Africa and the world who need to be reducing the spread, uh, flattening the curve, and all the messages that have been preached. So it's the people out there who are the front line. We in the hospitals are the last line of defense. We know that this is not a very lethal virus. Yes, it's not the normal flu, and people need to recognize that. We know from looking at the models of the countries who've been hit harder before us that particularly if you are young, fit, and well, maybe one or two in a thousand people are going to succumb to this virus. We do know that if you take the whole population, Maybe about 10 to 15 percent may need hospitalization and they may need a little bit of support, maybe some oxygen and maybe some medical treatment. The vast majority of everybody else who gets it is going to be able to convalesce safely at home uh, and is going to get over it like you would get over a bout of the flu. It's only a small percentage, somewhere around 2 to 5 percent, who are going to land up in hospital and needing critical care. That's, they're going to need perhaps to go on a ventilator, but at least to have some kind of respiratory support. The great problem is that. Two percent of an entire country is a huge number of people, and it's way more than our healthcare system can cope with at one time. So that's why we really need to slow down the spread of this virus to allow us to spread out those cases so that everybody can get the care that that they need. And also make sure that the medical professionals are all themselves able to serve. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the uh, the biggest concerns at the moment, and I, I'll speak frankly, you know, we as medical practitioners are nervous. We're worried about ourselves. We're worried about our families. We're worried about taking the virus home and transmitting it to our elderly parents who live with us who are at greater risk. So, yes, there's, there's a lot of conf- uh, fear and anxiety, but with preparation and with planning uh, comes the confidence to, to deal with this disease. The greatest problem in the, at the moment is if people are unwittingly exposed to the disease and need to be quarantined, if you take a couple of people off the shop floor in the hospital, that immediately puts everyone else at greater risk because they're working harder, longer hours, etc. So getting them the right protective equipment, screening for contacts, tracing the people that have been exposed, slowing down the spread, these are the things which are going to keep us safe and keep us working. Sounds like Soromaposa has been listening to people like you because what the country's trying, what he's trying to tell the country is exactly what you've uh, articulated now. Yeah, look, I have to say the greatest respect to our uh, president and uh, to his ministers. We were all call, calling for a lockdown early in South Africa. Uh, there was a, pre- a petition that went around from medical practitioners and the president has called for a lockdown early. 
What we really need to do is to see people respect that as much as possible. And a great challenge and a great concern to us is that we recognize because of the inequalities in this country, there are a lot of people to whom a lockdown is is a huge challenge and a huge problem in our underprivileged areas and to people who don't have the resources to sit in a comfortable house in a leafy suburb. So uh, you know, how we can help our uh, fellow citizens to isolate socially as much as possible, how we can support people who are more vulnerable in this time is really where uh, business and where the citizenry of South Africa should be turning their eyes. This has been episode 12 of Inside COVID-19. Until tomorrow, I'm Alec Hogg. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.